step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hi, I'm Ron Barr, and this is today's edition of Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. Bob Tewksbury joins us on Sports Byline. He pitched in the major leagues for double-digit years with the Yankees, Cubs, Cards, Padres, and Twins. He was drafted in the 19th round and played his first two major league seasons with the New York Yankees, and his best year was in 1992 when he went 16-5. and Also, he's now a mental skills coach for the San Francisco Giants after getting his master's degree in sports psychology and counseling, and he has a very interesting, insightful book. It's called 90% Mental. Bob, first of all, you were drafted in the 19th round. Uh, put that into perspective as far as interest from a ball club who drafts a player in the 19th round. <laughs> well, uh, you know, that's a great point because uh, I was just happy to be drafted. But if you look at it today and you say you get drafted in the 19th round, you probably go, oh, geez, that's too bad. <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, it, it was um, – you know, once you get into the dance, as they say, uh, everything's equal. And, and uh, I was happy to get a chance. But the 19th round is, put it this way, you're not a priority until you make yourself one. What was your expectation of playing professional baseball? And how was it similar to or different from what you thought? Uh, it was great. You know, I mean, I, as a dream of a kid, um, you know, I couldn't wait to get to the ballpark. I, I just the love and passion for the game as a kid. And that's all I really wanted to do. So when that, when that opportunity came, um, I was thrilled, you know, I'd love getting to the ballpark. I'd love playing. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of a couple of surgeries and a chance to, um, I got released, I got traded. Uh, and then it becomes part of a business, you know, as you get to the big leagues and you understand that part of it. And then also I think, it kind of becomes a job in a sense um, as you get older, because you start having a family and, you know, it's, you're still playing a game, but it's not viewed as the game. I think that, that you had this exuberant youth uh, look at when you first signed. Uh, so it, it changes, but definitely it was, it was a great thrill. And I still can't believe that I was able to trick them for 18 professional seasons. <laughs> You know, Bob, that's an interesting point because if you take a look at professional sports, but in this case professional baseball, it is a game. There's a fun side to it. It doesn't have a fixed office like you'd find in a bank. And there are so many dynamics that are different about professional sports, professional baseball. Give me some insight about the feel of it. I mean, how does one adapt and really get the most out of that experience? 
Well, it's, my wife used to laugh at me because she worked as, as, a, as a administrator at a hospital, and um, she would often tell me, you know, when I was a rookie with the Yankees, you know, and, I, and you know, I was definitely afraid of Lou Pinella. Uh, she'd say, well, just go in and talk to him. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? You can't do that in baseball, you know? And, uh, but in, in the real world, you sit down and have meetings like that. And the employees are, aren't afraid of, you know, losing their job. I don't think that, but in baseball, it's much different. Um, you know, it is, it is, uh, very different, but culturally, you know, you, you still have groups of people that you, um, that you hang out with, that you like, you have, you have coworkers that you hang out with that you like, some that you don't like, you know, it's very much similar to it. It's just that we wear a uh, uniform and we do it every day. You know, there's, there's no off days. So I think there's 20 off days during the course of a major league season. So it's, uh, it's a grind. One thing that is different about the business of sport business of baseball is that the players have superstitions. How about you? Did you have any superstitions? I tried not to uh, because I, I didn't want to have that crutch. Now, there's a big difference. You ask players that, and they'll say, well, it's my routine. And, you know, the difference is, well, if you don't do your routine, do you still think you have a chance to put, perform well? And and people do that without, you know, if you don't have your routine, say, okay, I can still go play. But if you don't have it and you think it's a superstition that if you don't do it, you're not going to play well, then you're in trouble. And I, I never had those type of superstitions um you know, if if I did, even in the slightest way, I, I minimized it. I certainly not as strong as like a Wade Boggs did, or no more Garcia Power with his gloves or something like that. But I try to stay away from those. How intimidating was it for you as a young baseball player to start out with the Yankees? Tell me about the, well, the first time you walked into Yankee Stadium and put on the pinstripes. Yeah, you know, I, I as you said that, uh, I can remember walking into Yankee stadium. I made the team out of spring training Ron, And I, um, I got on the bus and we went up to New York. And I remember the first thing I did was I walked out to the mound and, uh, looked at home plate. And I thought, well, this just looks just like White's park back home in Concord, New Hampshire. And then I looked up and then I looked around and I was like swallowed by the depth and the height of the bleachers. And, and the stands and, and I was like, Whoa, this is a little different, but you know, it was, it was definitely a, a thrill uh, being there until I started to struggle. And then, and then, you know, the media became overwhelming and, you know, the, the negative thoughts and the negative fear of failing, failing came into play. And, you know, I, I grew up in a small town with a blinking yellow light, you know, and, and uh, Salisbury, New Hampshire. And, so being my being in New York was uh, a big step for me and got uncomfortable when, when I wasn't pitching well. Which was more intimidating, uh, the Yankees in New York or Fenway Park in Boston when you were there playing? Oh, boy. <laughs> Another. Um, well, uh, the Yankees, I'll tell you, I pitched, I pitched in Fenway as a member of the Rangers against the Sox in 1995 and I gave up I was pitching against Clemens and we had a four-run lead we knocked Roger around which didn't happen a whole lot back then and and then I I remember uh 
Jose Canseco hit a home run off me to put the team ahead. The inning, just what became a base hit, a blooper, and uh, a walk turned into this major inning. And and I don't remember ever being on a field and hearing the crowd be so loud as it was that day in Little Fenway. Uh, but Boston, you know, there's a lot of passion there. And, um, you know, those are great places to play. The Green Monster, I know when I walked into Fenway as a sportscaster in Boston, and I had never seen it before, but my mouth literally dropped open. I couldn't believe that it was that close, that it was that high. And I think from a baseball point, give me a baseball perspective of seeing that for the first time. I remember the first time I saw it as a kid, Ron. I walked in through the – was down on a class trip. I think I was nine years old. And uh, we walked in, and – the first, they were playing the Senators, the Washington Senators, and uh, Frank Howard was on the team. And uh, I remember seeing that it was the greenest green and the most brilliant thing I'd ever seen. And I'll never forget that image of seeing that. But, and, you know, and being there and working for them for so long, and you kind of get used to it. And then when, you, when you're not there and you go back and see it, you're like, oh, my God, this is really crazy. But I tell you, being on the mound there, uh, you know that it's right behind you, and fly, any fly ball to that area of the field is trouble. I know also you developed a pitch that uh, I didn't know anything about. I mean, I knew of it, but I did not know the history of it. Maybe you can help me a little bit with it. The EFIS pitch. <laughs> yeah, the EFIS. You know, it's uh, my son called it the two-finger dominator because I, my regular the sign for my curveball was just two fingers down, but when the catcher wiggled the two fingers, it was – the dominator, uh, but it's affectionately known in baseball as the EFIS. And, you know, uh, some Dave LaRoche threw the lob. Uh, you know, it's been around for years. And, and this was really, it really was a curveball because it had forward spin on it versus a lob ball, which would just have backward spin on it. But I, I started messing around with just seeing how slow I could throw the curveball and still get it over the plate. And I got it down to about 46 miles an hour where I could still throw it over the plate and get people out. And, and I have some great stories of facing McGuire where, you know, I threw it to him and, and he swung and popped it up. And then the next time up, I threw it to him again and he swung and he grounded up. And then the third time up, I, I didn't want to push my luck. So I threw him a regular curveball and he got a base hit to left. And I sent him over a note after the game and just said, hey, I, I hope you understand. I, I wasn't trying to show you up. I was just trying to, to change speeds. And, and he goes, oh, I'm a sucker for those. I loved it. I would have swung at them all day long. So I should have thrown him a third one. <laughs> <laughs> We've got Bob Tewksbury with us on Sports Byline. We're talking about his career. But also when we come back on the other side, we're going to talk about his book called 90% Mental. And he's now a mental skills coach for the San Francisco Giants after getting his master's degree in sports psychology and counseling as well. Had an outstanding career, and one of the things I remember most about him was the control that he had as a pitcher. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we continue across the country and around the world. Bob Tewksbury has joined us here on Sports Byline. Uh, Not only an outstanding uh, player for double-digit years, playing and pitching with the Yankees, Cubs, Cards, Padres, and Twins. Let me touch uh, base on that control. You were just outstanding with your control. Was that more technique or was it more mental? 
Uh, well, it was a combination of both, uh, actually, because I always had fairly good control, uh, but it wasn't until I got to the Cardinals after I had shoulder surgery that it became more refined. Uh, so I really knew my mechanics well. My mechanics were simple, and I think if you have simple mechanics and they're repeatable, uh, you should be able to throw the ball over the plate consistently, which I, I really worked hard to do. But from the mental standpoint of that, you know, you make note of those of my control, I think the two-year period, I pitched over 200 innings in both consecutive years and only walked 20 batters in each year. So uh, it was 40 walks and 430 innings or something like that. And I tell the players, I said, it wasn't because I was never behind in the count. Uh, but when I got behind in the count, there were certain things I did physically and mentally to help me get back into the count. And one was step off the mound and breathe to relax. And the other one was to just think about, you know, I didn't think about not walking this guy. I thought about throwing a good strike. So the mental part of that self-talk uh, and, and focus on the task really uh, helped accentuate my command. Bob, when you broke into Major League Baseball, how accepting was baseball, the players, to maybe even interacting with a sports shrink? <laughs> Well, this, using that term shrink is what the players thought about it. You know, <laughs> I don't want to talk to that shrink, you know, and, and the, the late great Harvey Dorfman said, you know, don't call me a shrink. I'm, my job's really as an expander. I want to expand your mind. But to your point, uh, not very well received. You know, I, I think that uh, it was a sign of weakness. And if you had to talk to someone like that, you weren't strong. And uh, that has thankfully changed uh, a whole lot over the last 20 years, but it's definitely, uh, you know, it was a survival of the fittest. And if you need to talk to someone, you know, then you're not strong enough, but that's not the case now. I'm going to assume that maybe money had a little bit to do with it. What changed the attitude toward that? Um, well, I think that it's, you know, when I first came in, Ron, it was strength and conditioning would just started with, weightlifting and hiring strength coaches and then it went to nutrition and uh performance you know and then the steroids came so that was a tipping point it went a little too far and so the the real the last part of this that never had really been fully addressed was the mental part and somehow the field of sports psychology uh, has got integrated into baseball through the works of ken revisa and charlie marr and harvey dorfman and people started to see the benefit of it. And now it's something that most teams have. It's, it's even in the collective bargaining agreement that the players want a resource to someone that provides these uh, skills, mental training skills to help their performance. So uh, it's still, it's more accepted. There are some teams with veteran players kind of less accepting, but as, as the players, that are signed now go through their farm system at some point soon, every player is going to be really more accepting of it as a position that as a resource. I'm going to make an observation here, but if I'm wrong about it, Bob, feel free to correct me is the foundation of uh, the mental side of sports, the mental side of performance, K I S S keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, you know, it, it really is. Um, you know, I just had a conversation with a player that was trying to do some things just, you know, he's like, I just want to get 1% better. And I'm like, well, why, why can't, why can't you be happy with what you have? You know, the Boston Celtics won all those championships running five plays. 
Mariano Rivera get to the Hall of Fame throwing one pitch, you know, and he, uh, so doing, doing the little things well consistently and keeping it simple is the key to success and keeping the thought process simple on the mound or at the batter's box or on the golf course or whatever it is, is the best way to get there. And, you know, overthinking and, and overanalyzing and being self-critical is, the worst way to have successful performance. And the other thing is to stay even keeled. Uh, Joe Morgan, a good friend of mine, we've talked about performance a number of times. And he said the day that he went 0 for 3, he remembered the day he went 3 for 3. And I think that's an important lesson. Well, that's why he's, that's why he was a great player and a Hall of Famer. Uh, and not everyone has that same focus because there's a lot of players who go 0 for 3 and forgot that they ever got a hit. Uh, and they magnify those 0 for 3s, especially, you know, if they come with men on base and, you know, the game on the line. So, yeah, he's, you know, I think every elite athlete is going to fail. Uh, and I think some some of the, the best elite athletes uh, realize they've had a lot of successes and aren't afraid to fail. Uh, the other athletes, maybe they wouldn't be elite. I guess that turns on the term, terminology of elite. Everyone in the big leagues is elite in the field. But I think the difference between good to great players, the elite players, is uh, the guys that minimize their failures and maximize their successes. And not all players do that. Do the good players also find failure as a motivating factor? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that's a great point because because they – they have confidence to know that over time they're going to succeed. And so that failure motivates them more uh, because on the other end of that, they know good things are going to happen. Uh, conversely, if a player doesn't have that belief system and, and failure can start to dig them into a deeper hole. And, uh, and that's, that's why I have a job. <laughs> One of the things that I found very interesting is something that Michael Jordan said to me when we were talking about performance and uh, the motivating factor of failing. He said, when the game is on the line, I want to be the one to determine the outcome. If I succeed, I want the glory. If I fail, I'll take the blame. And you know as well as I do, Bob, probably athletes especially, that's hard for somebody to do. It is, you know, and that's just the, you know, I mean, how great is that comment? Because it's, you know, that's what I want to determine the outcome and I'll live with it. And that's a guy that's a leader. That's a guy that you want on your team. That's a guy that every championship team has. Uh, but David Ortiz was that way. You know, David Ortiz hit the Grand Slam in 2013 off Joaquin Benoit at Fenway Park. And I uh, talked to David a number of times and he actually just tweeted out a thing on my book, which I was really appreciative of. Of, but David goes, when I get in those moments, I know that the pressure is more on that other guy than on me. And I just, I just try to do what I do. I don't try to do anything more. I just do what I do. And he loved those situations. So those great, great players that do that in pressure moments, uh, they definitely see things differently. Well, we have a little over two minutes left, and I'd be amiss if I didn't ask you for one of your favorite baseball stories. Oh boy, one of my favorite baseball stories. Uh, God, I have so many. I was just told one today that uh, I was talking about the book. I walked, I struck out George Brett in my third major league game. I hit Willie Wilson in that same game. Willie Wilson charged the mound and uh, got in my first brawl. And in Kansas City, the elevator was centrally located. The home locker side is on the right, the visitors on the left. 
I walked into the elevator after that game, and George Brett comes into the elevator, and there's no one else. Brett's tan, he's got his you know, uh, flip-flops, jeans. And he goes, kid, what are you trying to do out there? You're going to get someone hurt. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it's like George Brett scolding me. You know, I'm a rookie. This is a Hall of Famer. And I didn't say anything. And then the door opened and he goes, don't ever stop pitching inside. You pitched a hell of a game. Um, and I just I was left standing there like what just happened. <laughs> but uh, that's a quick, quick story. Let me ask you, uh, you know that what it's always been said about left-handers and left-hander uh, relievers in particular, the elevator doesn't go to the top. The, yeah, you know, those sort of – is there anything to that with uh, – are left-handers in baseball a little bit different when it comes to pitchers? You know, I, I think that they are. I don't know if um, – you know, it seems to be that way, and it certainly maybe it's a folktale that happens from the, – that gets passed along as years and years go by. But um, – you know, I, you know, there's a lot of right-handers too that I played with that a little out of their mind. I just think they, I think, I think that people are just out of their mind. They just happen to be right-handed or left-handed. So, what do you want people to take away from the book? Uh, I want people to take away that I think it's a really unique perspective uh, on the inside part of the game, the mental game that really hasn't been. Um, uh, shared, I think, from a from a former major league player turned mental skills coach that uh, worked with some of the the some of the most prominent pitchers that, uh, players now that are in the postseason or have been John Lester, Rich Hill, Andrew Miller, Anthony Rizzo. Those are all guys that I worked with at the Red Sox. And uh, inside the game, the things that they do that make them that help them be the performers they are, and then also the the challenges and the the honest dialogue that I had of the struggles of pitching uh, as a young pitcher and then as an older pitcher with confidence, with those things that, um, you know, I struggle with. Then I want people to know that, you know, mental skills are part of the game. Uh, athletes are human, and I think it gives a unique look inside that game. Bob, congratulations on your outstanding career. I always enjoyed watching you pitch, and I was impressed with your control as well. And congratulations on this book. I hope people will check it out. It's called 90% Mental. Take care and come back with us again on Sports Byline, Bob. I've enjoyed it, Ron. Thanks for having me. Bob Tewksbury, again, pitched in the major leagues for double-digit years, pitching with the Yankees, the Cubs, the Cards, the Padres, and the Twins. You're listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And Laura was my girlfriend. 
This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. J.P. Howell joins us on Sports Byline, a left-handed pitcher who played for the Royals, Rays, Dodgers, and Blue Jays in 12 big league seasons, his last nine as a reliever. And he was drafted by the Atlanta Braves in the second round, but he chose to accept a scholarship to USC, where Coach Mike Gillespie said of him, J.P. is a phenomenal freshman talent, but he left that program transferred to the University of Texas. He was 10-2 and with a 2.52 ERA as a sophomore, and he helped lead the Longhorns to an appearance in the College World Series. And there he had the lowest ERA in the College World Series at .77. And then he was drafted in the first round of the 2004 Major League Baseball draft by the Kansas City Royals, and he made his Major League Baseball debut with the Royals in 2005. Let me take you back home. Growing up in the Sacramento area, tell me a little bit about baseball in your life in the early years, J.P., well, man, so well, you know, it's always been a part of my life. It was huge, uh, you know, huge bonding for me and my dad, and and also, you know, pretty much everybody in my family. It was, you know, growing up on the rocking chair, sitting, and we were watching, uh, you know, literally nine innings of baseball when I was four or five years old. So to me, um, it, you know, it's pretty much my first love. And then to continue on and and then have bonds within my family was great. And then I also loved playing it, so it all worked out for me in terms of the uh, the full circle of baseball. As a kid looking at the game of baseball, the professional game, what is it that you saw back at that time that caught your attention? You know, I saw just a bunch of toughness, man, that I admired. These guys are out there. You can tell, um, you know, these guys were in shape working out, and it was so competitive, especially at the, the major league level. I was just drawn to that for, for some reason. And, um, you know, I just something that, that grew on me. I wanted to be tough like them. And, and, and come out and play some hardball and some baseball, and that's what I got to do for, for, for a living, and it was an honor and a blessing. So for me, to me to be a part of baseball, it was, uh, you know, so far in my life, it's been, a, it's been a gift. You went to USC to begin with, but you only went a couple of years there, and then you transferred to the University of Texas. Tell me, uh, tell me why you picked USC, and what were the circumstances of transferring to Texas? USC is such a great institution. I wanted to make sure I had a, a backup plan, take some pressure off me during the, the minor league years because it's, uh, you know, when you go to high school, I felt like it was a little bit more make or break. And, uh, you know, I didn't have an education to back me up in case I did fail or get hurt. And um, so that took a lot of pressure off me. So I decided to go to school. I went to USC, ran into a little bit of uh, some problems there with, you know, just strategy-wise. So I felt like it wasn't a good fit. And uh, I decided to go to Texas and, and be under Augie Garrido, which was a uh, another gift that I was sent. And he, uh, he propelled me forward into my professional career, career to, to take off and uh, be prepared. You mentioned about Augie Garrido. I tell you what, I had so many wonderful conversations with him over the years and the love that he had, the way he had a way of nurturing his players. What was it that made him so unique? You were a guy that played for him. Give me some insight on that, JP. Uh, it was more accountability. Accountability. He taught me, you know, you have to hold yourself accountable in life and, um, there's a difference between a win and a loss, and 
and it's not every time, but you have to you have to find the wins when you can get them, and the losses when you you have to learn from every one of them. You can't just pass those on and 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 wash those experiences away. You have to grow from them, and um, you know I, you have to look in the mirror every single day, and that's something he taught me. He goes, make sure you like the person you're looking at, and uh, it's something I, I really held dear to my heart when I heard those words from him. And he's giving guys like me second and third chances. You know, when I was there, I, I ran into some trouble off the field, like some you know a young kid, and he you know he was he was disciplined but he would bring you back open-hearted so something that was very important to me at the time you know as well as i do there are two processes to getting to major league baseball professional baseball one is you can sign straight out of high school and go into the minors or the other is you can go to college for three years and then sign with them what's the advantages of going the college route the college route like i said it may take some pressure off you you know knowing that you have an education behind you that if you do uh, if you don't make it, it's not the end of the world, which does help day in and day out in baseball. And you don't want to have, you want to take as much pressure off yourself as you can because you put the most pressure on yourself anyways. So you might as well take off a load and, and some insecurities. And for me, um, having a backup plan, having an education was huge. But the advantage of signing out of high school is you're getting started in, in, a, in a professional career that may not come back around. I mean, I was fortunate to turn that down the first time I got in the second round it didn't guarantee me that I was going to get picked again, you know? So it was a little bit stressful during those college times, but um, you know, once you get used to that, those pressures, it's just another day, you know, and, and it actually helps you grow. So either way you go, it's a personal decision. Money for me was a big part of it. And, um, and also having an education. So it has to be a big, a large amount for me to take a kid away from college. There's another aspect to it as well. And I would think that this applies more to pitchers than it does maybe to position players. And what I mean by that JP is the fact that the arm is developing, the head is developing for a pitcher. And I think if you go into college where you can test things out and, and then start to mature and grow both physically and also emotionally, that that is better than going right out of high school and being thrown into the deep end of the pool. I think so. Like I said, it, like if a guy's super mature, I think he's a unique guy, which isn't very many. We, as we know, we were all kids. You know, you, we're, None of us were really ready at 18 years old to, to go get thrown in and be under the microscope. I don't think we understand the magnifications on each outing and, and how much it means in, in terms of your future uh, and playing well and developing. But when you go to college, there's a little bit more time, a little bit more patience. Or, you know, you have your draft years and it's a, your junior year, so you have a little bit of time to kind of tinker with things and test things out. Houston Street went to college, and he was over the top at 93, and he drops down the sidearm to the college, and boom, there you have it, his career. So I think college, you can uh, develop – you know, pretty good, especially it's only, it's only three years and you can spend your minor league times in, in college like I did. And I only had one real long minor league season that I was in the big leagues. I've always been interested in the answer and I've got it from a number of pitchers uh, in baseball asking them, do you remember the particular moment when you became a pitcher, not a thrower? Because that is two different things. <laughs> that, no, absolutely. I mean, if you're a thrower and you have a hundred in the tank, you know, you, you have a chance, you know, you know, but there's something about pitching that lasts forever. And, uh, you know, the guys that pitch, I had to learn at a young age, I never threw hard. So I was never one of the best players with a great arm. I was a little smaller, and, and I threw. I was competitive, though, and that's what I, I had to learn to do. I had to compete and find a way. And um, that's something I had to do my whole time in the big leagues. I mean, you're adjusting day, day in and day out, and guys are doing the same thing to you. So at a young age, I had to uh, make sure that I was uh, prepared and in, in, in pitching, not just throwing the ball down the middle or, or trying to blow the ball by guys. That, uh, that doesn't get you too far in professional baseball. You know, it's very interesting. I remember doing a couple of Nolan Ryan's baseball games broadcast-wise, 
and everybody always thinks about him for his overpowering fastball. But I was blown away. I did a broadcast in which he pitched. Uh, he had a no-hitter going into the seventh inning, finished up throwing a two-hitter, and I remember the breaking ball that made the fastball so effective. But you only think of him about power. Do, do pitchers today think of power more than, you know, the smartness of, of throwing a breaking ball at, at the right time and having control of the pitch? I think, you know, as I've seen the game change, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to change. And I think that, um, you know, it's, the style is a little different. I think it's a, these guys have a, it's a spin rate thing. It's, it's mathematical. And, and I've seen it work. I mean, these guys can throw the ball, you know, middle, middle up uh, a lot of times over and over. And there's not much pitching. They're rearing back and throwing. But there's some, something behind it with the spin rate. And it is making guys miss. But as you've seen, when, dudes, when guys do connect, there's a lot of runs being scored, a lot of home runs. And, and that's just the style of the game. It's going to continue to change and evolve. And that's the beauty of baseball. Just, you know, guys are messing with it. Sometimes I wish they'd stop messing with the game, leave it alone. But in the same voice, you know, it's what, what people want to see. And that's what it comes down to, I guess. The Royals brought you up on June the 11th, 2005. You started the game against the Arizona Diamondbacks. Tell me about that game because you only gave up one run in five innings. Yeah, right. It was a heck of a day. I mean, it was a dream come true. And uh, it was in Arizona close to home. So all my family was there. And it was, uh, it was just a truly exciting day. I mean, to be honest, we knew the day was coming, but you just you don't believe it's coming until it gets there. And uh, it was just uh, it was great. It was more of a family atmosphere for me, and it was a dream come true for everybody. I like the comment from Diamondbacks outfitter Luis Gonzalez. He said of you, we didn't have oh, yeah. much of anything on him going in. It was like walking down a dark alley. <laughs> yeah, that's great news to hear when it was your debut for me. It gave me a lot of confidence to have a – Guy of his of his name to stay down his stature and you know in baseball he's been there done that and he was coming off a World Series so for me it was it was an honor just to be on the same field as those guys and and this guy in the past before me. You know you said something that is really critical I think to all professional athletes particularly uh, to a pitcher in baseball and that is confidence and I don't know how that gets um, gets developed. Can you give me some insight on that? You got to talk to yourself a lot, man. I'll tell you what this whole time. I didn't have uh, too many people saying I was going to make it, you know, and, and I, I learned to talk to myself a lot knowing that that didn't matter. And, and uh, you know, I do a lot of talking to myself when I'm out there and before. And, um, you know, it's self-belief, man. If you're working hard and uh, you really want to do it, if I didn't make it in baseball, I guarantee it would have led me to something else that I love to do. You know, I, I really believe that. So you got to go for it. It's a dream. And that's why it's called a dream. It's hard to get. And uh, so I, you got to believe, man, if you don't do that, no one's going to believe in you. So you got to start with yourself. If you believe in yourself, others start to follow, and the results will come. You were a later day Mark Fidrich than I assume. <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a legend. I, that's another compliment, man. He's getting me a big head. That guy's I love that guy a lot. So yeah, yeah. JP, <laughs> hold on just a second. We'll continue on. We're right. talking with JP Howe, left-handed pitcher who played for the Royals, Rays, Dodgers, and Blue Jays in twelve big league seasons. His last nine. As a reliever, we'll talk about the rest of his career. Get his thoughts on baseball, where it's going, and also some of his best memories about not only games but athletes, batters that he faced, and uh, everything else that makes baseball so special in our American culture. We continue with more of you and Sports Byline. J.P. Howell with us on Sports Byline, left-handed pitcher who played for the Royals, Rays, Dodgers, and also Blue Jays in 12 big league seasons, his last nine as a reliever. I'm going to ask him about relieving as – compared to being a starter, but I know that you were traded uh, to the Rays, and uh, one of, you know during that period of time, you also went down to the minors and played with the Durham Bulls. Now, I have been down at that stadium, and I think most people know uh, the history of that stadium. 
But for somebody that puts on a uniform and actually plays in that stadium, what was that like, JP? I mean, you're putting on – it felt like history. You know what I mean? Being a part of some history, it's probably the greatest uh, minor league franchise. It has to be one of them, at least. And uh, to play there in the history, we even had a chance to play on the original field. It's beat up now, but still, we know who walked on that field and who played on it and the names that have put the uni on. So it was, uh, it was just another thing that baseball has given – given me, which was an honor to, to put Union on and walk on another field where legends were, were once were. Tell me a little bit about what you remember about minor league baseball. You know, everybody knows about the comfort of major league baseball, but there's an atmosphere right. that's different. The fans are different. They're closer to the game. They embrace the players of the local team a little bit more. Well, that's it, man. I mean, I remember having, having cold ones with, with fans after games. I mean, that's something you don't do really in the major league level. I mean, uh, you're going back with your team to the hotel and you're in your own room. In minor league baseball, you have a roommate on the road, and, and no one wants to go back to the room right away, so we all go grab a bite to eat. And uh, it's, a, it's a lot more camaraderie, you know, it is. It's, uh, it's a lot more close-knit. You're traveling on bus rides that can be up to 14 to 15 hours. And uh, the flights, you're getting up at 2 a.m., getting on a flight with four connections and, and landing. Just a lot of bonding going on, a lot of struggle. You know, when you have struggle, guys have to lean on each other. And in the baseball, it's a, it's a lot nicer. In the, in the major league, at the major league level, it's a lot nicer up there. It's you know, it's first class flights, and you have your own hotel room, so you have some space. And um, so it's a little different. But in the minor league level, I'll tell you what, I got a lot of friends from that level, and uh, that I'll have forever in my life. In 2008, the Rays decided to move you out of the starting rotation and into the bullpen. And I'm supposed that the reaction was more of, "What are you thinking?" But <laughs> tell me what you were thinking when they suggested that. You know, man, when they said, uh, "Hey, we, you know, you're gonna, you, you can either break with the team on opening day as a reliever, or you're our fifth or sixth, you're a sixth or seventh guy in, in the starting rotation, working your way up." I said, "Man, if it says major league level, I'll fill up cups of water, you know, for the boys. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'll relieve. I'll start. You know, I'll coach. Whatever." So at that point, it was not even a question for me, and, and they were they were happy to hear that. I embraced it really. I said, at the point, I was I was getting a little frustrated with starting. I wanted to play every day and get out there and see the bullpen. I saw how the bullpen worked, and I was starting to kind of fall in love with that a little bit. And uh, it was actually good timing for me. It was Joe, it was Joe Madden move, Andrew Friedman. And they, uh, they've, been, they've, been thought, they've been thinking about that for a while at the time. And the fact that they suggested it and told me that I could break with the team, it was a no-brainer for me. What type of changes mentally did you have to make to accept that position? You know, what's funny is I, starting was always a struggle for me mentally. It was, you have to stay calm, you know, and I'm kind of – I get fiery when I'm out there, and it's – you know, you got as a starter, you know, you have to kind of, you know, stay within yourself and you have 100 pitches to deliver. So you can't, you can't go out there and start geeking on pitches and on three and seven, you know, my seventh pitch of the game, I'm throwing as hard as I can and stuff like that. So that was something I kind of, I didn't figure out as a starter, but it actually ended up playing well for me in, in, the, in the bullpen. It's interesting you bring that up because off of that answer, I'm assuming that when you think about the long haul, getting to the sixth or the seventh inning, you really have to pace yourself and to be under control. But if you're a reliever, you're coming into the game, you're expected to maybe go one at the most two innings, so therefore you can just let it fly, can't you? Yeah, you can let it eat, man. And that's something that I you know, I was in love with. And that's why I love pitching is because I like to rear back and let it go into the location. You know what I mean? I like to spot up. I have to. But I like to, to go ahead and uh, and take a little bit more of the, of the patience out and just try to get them out now. I'm throwing, I'm throwing my best curveball. Um, on the first pitch of the game, sometimes out of the, out of the bullpen, you know, it's a, it's a O breaker, and I can, I can let it go because I got you know 18 pitches to go, and that's it. So I can I'm not going to get tired. And with that being said, it's 
it's go time. And that's the stuff I love about uh, relieving. Trevor Hoffman, when I was talking to him, I asked him, what's the greatest asset that a closer can have? And he said, a short memory. <laughs> yeah, that's, like that's the number one thing all, all relievers need to have is a short memory, good or bad. Because if you're doing good, they're waiting for you the next day. And if you did bad, guess what? You're getting the same guys in the same order coming for you again. So you got to get over some things and, and move on. And, and that, that truly is a skill. And, and I think, that, like Trevor Hoffman said, the legend, it's, a, it's the best asset. How would you describe Tampa Bay as a baseball town? It's uh you know they they love the baseball. It's a tough situation. I mean you know the economy's a little was a little bit low at the time when I was there, and and the bridge and traffic and gas was going, and, and there was you know during the '08 all that stuff was going on. But uh, you know it's a, they love baseball. I mean there's a lot of tradition there. There's the Pelicans or whatever it's St. Pete that stadium that they have. We used to have spring training at. I mean there's a lot of history going on there, and and. You know, it's a, it's a struggling it's a struggling arena. You know, it's it's things that have to be addressed at some point, and they will be. And but it's tough for me to say leave Tampa because it's such a great place, and I know that the fans there that when they show up, they they love baseball, man. But sometimes when you're playing as a Ray, you have you have fifty thousand Red Sox fans or however many. <laughs> it's the majority of the other team is there, and and that gets a little annoying. But at the same time, it feels a little bit of toughness in you too. 2008 was a very special year for the Rays. They go to the World Series. Let's start with Joe Madden. Tell me a little bit about him. Joe's, uh, you know, he's my he's a mentor. I mean, he's a guy who pretty much uh, he can get into your brain and, and, and help you eliminate things and add things. And he was like a psychologist, means and a second father. So for for me personally, he was huge in my life. And uh, the guy who, like I said, looked out, out for me off the field as well as on the field. And he does that with all his players, which is something special. He has a unique uh, relationship with each and every one of them. And you don't see that every, with every manager in the big leagues. It's, it truly is a skill, and you can't expect your manager to be like him. But uh, if you have one like Joe, uh, you're going to do, do a lot of damage and win a lot of games. I know it was a five-game series. Was there an awe factor for the Rays that, you know, they'd never been there before, so they weren't quite sure what to do? You know, what I, what I look back on and what I think of is, is when we got past the Red Sox, I mean, we fought with them during the season. I mean, physically and all, you know, in, in, in great baseball games, all the all the way around, it was a battle. And you know, we had to go through them to get there. It was such a high beating them that I think that that carried over just a little bit and stunned us in Game One of the World Series. We were so excited. We didn't think that we won it already, but we we thought we got past the hard part. You know, it was the let up. And then you know, as you know, champions can't do that, and that's why Philadelphia won that. That's my opinion of the of the 08, you know, World Series. One of the things that I think about, and you fall into this category, that there are athletes, no matter what the sport is, that you have to rip the uniform off them. You know, they're not going to leave uh, on their own, per se. And that's kind of what you're doing. You're playing with the San Rafael Pacifics, and you signed with them, and they're in the uh, Pacific Association. That's an independent league. And I know I read a quote from you. You said, I've been blessed in my career I just want to play right now, compete and get out with the fellas, play some hardball, man. Uh, that You fall into that category. It's going to be hard for you to leave the game ultimately at some point, isn't it? It is, man. That's why I don't think I'll ever truly leave it. I think I have to stay in it. Right now I'm letting go. It's hard to let go of the cleats, man, but at the same time I'm getting the second opportunity to play some baseball with some guys that have passion that you wouldn't believe behind behind their, their day in and day out grind. They love it, man. They love being in this league and they compete. And they're going at each other. And, and for me to be around that, and uh, it's something I need. I, I need that in my life at this point. And uh, they're letting me do it. So I'm having, I'm having a blast with these guys. Is there anything different about the passion that today's players, young players have, that's different from the passion you had when you were a young player? 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. These guys are so smart. These kids, honestly, coming up, man, they know they know a lot about the game. Just like every generation, I think, gets a little smarter. And, and you know, they, they have a little bit more business mindset. They understand that the, the key is to be healthy. But when I was coming up, you know, there was times, you know, I know guys were saying it too, I, you know, I don't care if, if my arm gets torn on this pitch, just make sure he doesn't hit it, you know. And you're thinking crazy thoughts like that where, you know, today it's a little different, I think. I think that you, it has to be that way for – you know, for your family, you guys don't want to hear that. And I don't want to hear that either. But, uh, you know, then you have the other end where not everyone's like that. There's guys out there that are out there grinding and they don't care what happened. You got Hunter Pence's, you got guys that are diving in the fences, letting it go. And, and those, that's a beautiful thing. So there's still that tradition is going to be in baseball is you got to be tough to play this game. And it's going to continue. I think. Did you ever think you'd see a first round draft choice, uh, going to the minor leagues with a seven plus million dollar contract? <laughs> man i really didn't you know that's that's unbelievable you know those guys are getting you know but he's gonna you know it's once you get that you're gonna he's gonna find out a lot if he's doing it for the money or not and i don't think those guys are they find out they actually do love the game they've gone this far you might as well continue to grind it out and it's not going to be easy and by any means but when you get that money you know it's a lot of money and you gotta i'm you know you gotta be surrounded by some good people to help you with that and hopefully the organization uh, you know, points guys in the right direction with that kind of situation. We've got about 30 seconds left. What's your favorite memory about playing baseball? Oh, man. There's, uh, I'll tell you what, my, my biggest memory, my favorite is when I was uh, 18 years old, uh, we got to go actually over into Cuba and play baseball against the Cuban team. It was Team USA, Chinese Taipei, you know, South Korea, team, you know, I don't even know, Japan may have been there. A bunch of teams were over there, and we had to actually fly into uh, Havana, drive drive through on a, on a bus on a two and a half hour bus ride to to Camagüey, and that's where the tournament was i mean they had the whole deal was there it was an unbelievable experience the people the the traditions they have and the passion behind their life in baseball and that for me was going to cuba and playing there was was my favorite i want to thank you jp i have a seat here in the studio anytime you're in san francisco i want you to come back in we'll talk some more baseball talk about your career and just about the game that you love so much and have played so successfully take care my friend Take care, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you. J.P. Howe, left-handed pitcher. He played for the Royals, Rays, Dodgers, and Blue Jays in 12 big league seasons, his last as a reliever. You have been listening to Ron Barr's Sports Byline USA podcast on the 8Side Network. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.